The information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. The orchiectomy that should be performed for gender dysphoria does have some technical considerations, namely where we place the incision. So, you know, we'd like the incision to be in a cosmetically appearing location so that if the patient does decide to undergo subsequent gender reassignment, Mm -hmm. that the scar doesn't cause any major issues, you know, with the cosmetic appearance of gender reassignment later down the line. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Aaron Everett, nurse practitioner. Really excited about today's episode because I think it's going to be really helpful and useful for the community. Today we're going to be having a very special guest, Dr. Shurik Dave. Dr. Shurik Dave is someone that I collaborate with on a regular basis to help with my patients, and he actually is located here in Atlanta and native to Smyrna, Georgia. Dr. Dave is affiliated with Advanced Urology and has extensive experience in all things urology, especially as it pertains to infertility, andrology erectile dysfunction, voiding dysfunction, but also he is able to provide a certain level of gender-affirming care for patients, including therapeutic orchiectomies. Dr. Dave completed his medical training and degree at Northeast Ohio Medical University, where he graduated in the top 10% of his class, which is no surprise after speaking with him. He also completed a general surgery internship and urology residency at William Beaumont Hospital in Michigan, where he gained considerable experience in general urology and advanced endoscopic, laparoscopic, and robotic surgeries. After completing that, Dr. Dave went on to complete a fellowship in genitourinary reconstruction, sexual and male reproductive medicine at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine in Maryland. It was also here that he was able to gain experience with trans women and the gender affirming process as it pertains to surgeries. Dr. Dave is very passionate about helping his patients in any way that he can, and I can attest to that as he's helped many of my patients achieve what their normal functioning can be and to also help them have pain relief with painful erections, allow them to have therapeutic orchiectomies, and also something as simple as providing trans-friendly care for those who have renal stones and other urinary issues. So without further ado, I would love to introduce Dr. Dave to our show, and let's get started. All right, so on today's show, we have Dr. Shirk Dave. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, get a chance to virtually meet your audience today. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think the things that we have on the list of topics today is going to be really helpful for the community. But before we get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of where you're practicing right now, what your passion is as far as urological care, and maybe like a fun fact about you that nobody else knows or wouldn't expect. Absolutely. So I am a native of Smyrna, Georgia. So 
grew up in Smyrna, went to school in Marietta, and uh, essentially I'm an Atlanta native. But, you know, when I graduated, you know, attended college in Chicago, went to medical school in Ohio, and that's kind of where I initially became interested in urology. It was during a gynecology rotation, ironically, as a third-year medical student, where you know I kind of realized uh, urology would afford me the opportunity to be a surgeon, but also follow my patients long-term and kind of address you know kind of chronic and lifestyle issues. But I think what really attracted me to the field was just the sensitive nature of the problems mm-hmm. and how we really had effective solutions that could kind of give uh, immediate gratification to the patients but also to the um, to the treating surgeon and physician as well so so that that attracted me to urology and ended up doing a five-year urology residency in michigan uh, at beaumont Uh, so that consisted of one year of general surgery followed by four years of urology training so you know during urology training was kind of exposed to all aspects of urology but Mm -hmm. became specifically interested in sexual medicine, uh, which included transgender health, but also infertility and reconstructive urology. So following my general urology training, I went and did a fellowship in sexual and reproductive medicine at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, training with uh, Dr. Arthur Burnett and uh, Dr. Amin Harati. And that was an outstanding experience, you know, kind of learned all aspects of sexual Mm -hmm. health, but also got to be involved in a very busy um, transgender health program, as well as a reconstructive urology unit. And so was involved in lots of interesting surgeries, but also um, really got to know the transgender population and uh, some of the sensitivities that goes along with that. And, you know, hopefully that's given me kind of a unique perspective as a urologist to kind of approach some of these issues from different angles. And then recently I decided to move back to Atlanta where I've joined advanced urology. I'm primarily located in the Marietta office, but mm-hmm. we'll work in Sandy Springs as well. And was fortunate to meet you, Aaron, and uh, had the pleasure of uh, taking care of several of your patients. And I you know, always love having interesting discussions with you about these patients as well. Yeah, it's super fun stuff. I guess a little known fact about me, you know, besides the fact that, you know, grew up here in Atlanta, I've kind of gone on a long circuitous route. My wife is actually a nephrologist. So you know, I'm, I consider myself a surgeon of the urologic system, and she's a medical doctor of the urologic system. So we um, have interesting, um, you know, dinner table conversations, uh, <laughs> sure. to say the least. But <laughs> so our, our motto is urine good hands. So, um, so there's <laughs> lots of discussions about urine no, in the yeah. house. But, uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So. That's so funny. Well, that's really cool. Well, thanks for that intro. You know, some of the things that I would like to talk to you about today, you know, really involve, you know, not just the LGBTQ community, but more specifically trans care. And one thing I get asked a lot about, and I know you've taken care of a lot of my patients for this particular procedure, is orchiectomy. You know, patients are dying to know what to expect, really. Like, how much does it cost? A roundabout, of course, because obviously you can't guarantee price uh, with payers and whatnot and ever-changing rates. But an average... and how successful are you getting it covered by insurance and that type of thing? And, you know, what pain should be expected post-procedurally and what benefits they may have? Sure. Yeah. So gender dysphoria is the the medical diagnosis that's uh, frequently used for patients that are interested in these procedures. You know, so it should be considered a permanent method 
of uh, hormonal treatment for gender dysphoria. Uh, the procedure itself, we call it a simple bilateral orchiectomy, which basically means uh, we're removing the testicle surgically, but rather than doing what's called a radical orchiectomy, which is made through a groin incision or in the lower abdominal area, such as we would do for a patient with testicular cancer, where we need to remove the entire cord uh, as well as the testicle itself, this can usually be performed as a same-day operation through a simple midline scrotal incision. So, you know, in my practice, it's usually about a one-inch incision Obviously, the patient is asleep, so they don't feel or remember anything. You know, we use what we call multimodal pain control, so a combination of uh, general or local anesthesia. But I can perform the option, the operation through that one-inch incision, whereby we would uh, remove the testicles and use a dissolvable suture to sew the incision back together. So the operation itself, you know, takes about half an hour. And like I said, you know, all patients go home on the same day. You know, most of the patients do very well in terms of pain control. So, you know, we've started using a lot of local pain control. So the nerves that supply that generally very sensitive area, we use numbing medication during the procedure to blunt that response. Mm -hmm. And most patients just use over-the-counter Tylenol and ibuprofen to control the pain. So, you know, we'll send them home with a couple of pain pills, you know, only to be used with extreme cases of pain. But Mm -hmm. the majority of my patients never really even have to fill that prescription or use that medication. So then usually, you know, just because of concerns about bleeding or anything like that after the procedure, you know, I ask them to wear kind of a tight supportive underwear for a few days mm-hmm. and refrain from any kind of heavy lifting. Heavy lifting for me is anything more than about seven to 10 pounds, which is about a gallon of milk if you wanted to compare it to something. Um, but no, no heavy lifting for about five to seven days after the procedure. And after that, you know, things, things have pretty much returned to normal. And then I'll usually see those patients about uh, a month after the procedure um, just to take a look at the incision and make sure things are healing up well. And then uh, basically return them to your practice to continue with their chronic hormonal management. But one thing, you know, I will kind of touch on, you know, bilateral orchiectomy is a fairly common procedure uh, in urology, whether it's for testicular cancer or whether it's for, you know, hormonal management of prostate cancer or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the orchiectomy that should be performed for gender dysphoria does have some technical considerations, namely where we place the incision. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'd like the incision to be in a cosmetically appearing location mm-hmm. so that if the patient does decide to undergo subsequent gender reassignment, mm-hmm. that the scar doesn't cause any major issues, you know, with the cosmetic appearance of gender reassignment later down the line. And that's what's so important to have a specialist like yourself who's familiar with that type of thing so that patients can still have that as an option because you know, the vast majority would love to go on to get vaginoplasty if it's available to them. So that's awesome. And I didn't realize it was such a quick procedure. So that's reassuring. And do you have um, a lot of difficulties getting it covered by insurance? Or is it just dependent on whether or not their plan is inclusive of trans care? Yeah, so you know, I would say, you know, we've had considerable improvement in insurance coverages as 
uh, gender dysphoria has increasingly been, you know, recognized by a number of insurance companies. I am by no means an expert in uh, mm-hmm. insurance companies, but right. uh, mm-hmm. certainly, um, you know, more and more insurance companies have started to recognize the diagnosis. And, you know, after we've made that diagnosis, the American Urologic Association recommends that patients be evaluated by two independent psychiatric health professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do require, you know, kind of two independent letters just stating that the patient's been evaluated and independent professionals feel that it's reasonable for the patient to undergo this procedure just because it's, uh, you know, obviously not a reversible procedure in most cases. So, um, you know, just just kind of being absolutely sure that everyone's in agreement that we should move forward. But, you know, as long as we meet those requirements and submit the necessary paperwork, you know, I found that the majority of patients have been able to um, get this covered by insurance. That being said, because it is a 30-minute procedure and can always be completed on an outpatient basis, you know, we do have, you know, the opportunity to do this, you know, in an ambulatory surgical center uh, where the patient would go home the same day with minimal anesthesia requirements, which can often reduce the cost of the procedure. But, you know, to answer your question, a lot of these are, are being covered by insurance companies nowadays. Okay. But it sounds like should the patient have to pay out of pocket, it's not totally out of reach. Yeah, you know, again, I'm I'm not an expert in that area, and we mm-hmm. can certainly get that information for patients, but it, I haven't found it to be an astronomical number or anything like that. Yeah, well, that's excellent. Um, so the other question I had pertaining to orchiectomy was a lot of patients have concerns about uh, sexual function after the surgery, and obviously a lot of that depends, a lot of sexual function uh, too depends on, you know, hormone levels. But anatomically, because of the surgery, would you expect someone to have an issue maintaining an erection or getting an orgasm? That That's a fantastic question. So, and, and something that we'll, we'll always talk to the patients about before they undergo the procedures. So anatomically, if you think of the function of the testicles, you know, mm-hmm. the, the primary responsibility of the testicles are to produce testosterone and to produce sperm. Mm-hmm. So sperm only makes up about 5% of the ejaculate. The majority of ejaculate comes from prostatic secretions and from two structures called the seminal vesicles. So patients should still expect to ejaculate, you know, and that that wouldn't look any different for them. The main issue after an orchiectomy is, you know, permanent loss of testosterone. Um, So Mm -hmm. even in the female sexual dysfunction literature, We've started to recognize more and more the importance of testosterone, both for males and females in sexual function, Mm -hmm. but this is primarily for libido. So libido is kind of defined as your interest in sex or uh, kind of your appetite for sex. So occasionally patients will need testosterone replacement to replace their libido, but specifically speaking, testosterone is not a treatment for erectile dysfunction nor would I expect someone who, who had an orchiectomy or permanently lost their ability to produce testosterone um, to have complete loss of erections. But we may need to replace testosterone, you know, to, to enhance their libido. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that's very good information for the listeners, too, because um, I get a lot of questions about that. Well, that's awesome. So basically, postoperatively, you don't expect any complications. But if, if there were, what would you say is the most common issue that patients may encounter after this type of surgery? 
Yeah. So we always um, counsel patients on you know the risk of all operations, but specifically to this operation, you know, I talk to them about the risk of bleeding. So you know, as I mentioned, you know, no heavy lifting, nothing more than a gallon of milk for about five to seven days after the procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the tight supportive underwear help. You know, I don't want patients um, you know riding a bike or you know getting back to the gym too quickly because of the risk of the bleeding. Now, bleeding would generally manifest as what we call a scrotal hematoma. So you can have some some bruising um, and some discoloration of the scrotum after the procedure. You know, generally it's not an emergency and we don't have to do any further procedures on that, but it can certainly delay the wound healing process. So that is one of the things that we talk to patients about. You know, the other risk of any operation where you're incising the skin is infection. So um, generally we'll give patients a preventative antibiotic. But, you know, if someone had an active infection of the scrotum or I was concerned about the skin, you know, we would treat that infection and wait until that was kind of cleared up before we move forward with the surgery. But, you know, in general, as long as they understand that the procedure will result in permanent infertility and, uh, you know, permanent lack of testosterone production from the testicles, those would be the, you know, the bleeding and the infection are the two main things that I talk to them about. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that information. It's super helpful. Some of the other things too, that I wanted to touch on, uh, that I get a lot of questions about as far as a uro- urological standpoint and in, in the gender diverse community would be genital atrophy for trans women and uh, pain with erections, you know, typically, and I've only very recently started prescribing topical compounded testosterone. It's like 1% compounded testosterone just to be applied to the genitals and daily Cialis. But is there anything else like from your standpoint or Am I off the mark on that? Anecdotally, I've seen some good results, but again, it's only been a handful of people. So kind of what are your thoughts on those two issues? No, I think, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think, you know, the, the benefits of, you know, phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors such as Cialis, um, such as Viagra, which we can often use at lower doses um, in these patient populations. You know, if you look at the way those medicines work, they work to increase an enzyme called nitric oxide, which basically enhances you know, erections or clitoral engorgement, Um, but it's really working by bringing healthy blood supply to the penis. And we know that blood has lots of anti-inflammatory and kind of restorative properties in there. Um, So so by putting patients on those medications, you know, either in an on-demand fashion or at a daily low dose, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it has a lot of restorative properties. And, you know, we're we're, we're, we're using those medications in that fashion for, um, you know, for a number of patients. And I, and I think topical testosterone can be helpful as well. And, you know, we're, we've used topical estrogen, you know, for vaginal atrophy for a number of years. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, the benefits of topical testosterone can certainly be beneficial as well. Yeah. And, you know, we typically I don't even see a large increase in uh, total testosterone too. they end up just kind of especially if they've already had an orchiectomy, they, they tend to just land in like cis female ranges, the topical T when we apply it that way. Correct. Yeah. So it's, it, it tends to support the local tissues, but, uh, you know, a number of studies have been done both looking at, you know, topical estrogen, um, you know, as well as topical testosterone where they've measured blood levels of testosterone and, and, you know, similar to what you're seeing in your practice, we do not see a lot of systemic absorption or a lot of testosterone that's absorbed into the bloodstream. So, yeah. 
Excellent. And so as far as that those topics go, as far as painful erection and pelvic floor pain and things like that, aside from medicines, do you have a lot of success with pelvic floor uh, PT with these patients? Oh my gosh. If I, if I could get every single one of my patients to go to a pelvic floor physical therapist, <laughs> I would die a happy man. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, it's, it just cannot be understated, you know, how detrimental the pelvic floor can be to so many issues in urologic health and sexual health. So, you know, a tight, a tight wound up pelvic floor can, can really kind of make things go haywire. So I am a, a huge proponent of pelvic floor physical therapy. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, you know, it's important that patients kind of understand that this isn't necessarily a physical therapist that takes care of shoulders and ankles and knees, but, right. you know, someone that's truly dedicated and has committed their career to the pelvic floor and can rapidly kind of uh, assess the patient, come to a correct diagnosis, and really use a lot of tricks in their tool bag, um, you know, mm-hmm. can really get our patients rehabilitated and feeling better quickly. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, uh, for a number of urologic, uh, you know, sexual health conditions, we're, we're always asking our patients to see pelvic floor physical therapists. Yeah, I, you know, and it's it seems obviously kind of surprising, but, you know, for lay people, I don't think a lot of lay people realize that their pelvic floor is all muscles they don't think about it you know and so of course just like you said with a tight back or tight shoulder you're gonna have limited range of motion and and dysfunction but the same holds true for the pelvic floor and so i think you're 100 percent right with uh how helpful the physical therapy could be yeah and you know if i can if i can make a plug here you know i have yeah um you know, no, no affiliation with this book, but it's just so wonderful that I uh, tend to recommend it to a lot of my patients. But I believe it's called "There's a Headache in My Pelvis." It's it's available on Amazon, and I've had a number of patients, um, you know, that. Uh, maybe I had trouble kind of explaining to them the importance of the pelvic floor mm-hmm. um, that have then, you know, uh, read the book and come back to me. And, and it just kind of, you know, triggered a light bulb that that kind of made this all evident for them. But, you know, we, we certainly do a lot in the office, you know, in terms of education and pictures yeah. and drawings and, and diagrams and, and models to just kind of show kind of how intimately involved the pelvic floor is uh, in kind of wrapping the urologic structures. And so, you know, inflammation and pain of the uh, of the pelvic floor can, can definitely cause referred pain to these urologic structures for patients. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll make note of that book. Uh, and thank you for the recommendation. Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe, then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. I was going to ask you, and of course we could probably have an entire episode on this particular uh, urological issue, but do you, you know, briefly, can you speak to interstitial cystitis and like how that may or may not impact a patient's ability to go ahead and get gender reassignment surgery or if it has any impact at all? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so interstitial cystitis is also defined as bladder pain syndrome. So, you know, the, the hallmark of interstitial cystitis is bladder pain. Mm -hmm. So interstitial cystitis, you know, is considered a diagnosis of exclusion. And what we mean by that is, Mm -hmm. you know, these patients, you know, generally will complain of pain when their bladder is full and relief when the bladder is empty. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, as most conditions are in medicine, uh, you know, there can be some gray areas with the diagnosis. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the first step for a urologist is to rule out you know, anything that could be masquerading as interstitial cystitis or bladder pain. So, you know, we want to rule out a urinary tract infection. You know, we want to rule out a kidney stone, you know, blood in the urine, um, you know, a prostate infection um, that could be mimicking these symptoms. Mm -hmm. And of course, if we found that, we would treat it appropriately. But, uh, you know, assuming you've ruled all these things out and the the patient continues to have pain, you know, one of the first steps is, you know, evaluating the bladder and the urethra with a camera. It's a procedure called a cystoscope. And so when we look in the bladder, there can be some characteristic findings of interstitial cystitis. So, you know, if a patient has ulcers throughout the bladder, that's what we call hunter's ulcers. We would generally cauterize or burn those ulcers, mm-hmm. and that can give patients significant relief. So, you know, the way I explain it to patients mm-hmm. is, you know, if you have interstitial cystitis with ulcers, the urine bathing those ulcers is like putting lemon on an open wound. Yeah, I can't um, even and so imagine by- how painful that would be. Yeah. So, so of course we take a biopsy to make sure that it's, it's nothing more serious, but Mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, there is benefit to cauterizing those ulcers to basically seal it so that that very irritative urine isn't continuously kind of bathing that wound. But this true, what we call ulcerative interstitial cystitis, you know, actually only exists in about 10% of patients. Um, The other 90% would have what's called glomerulations or just bleeding mm-hmm. and kind of inflammation of the bladder. Mm-hmm. And those patients benefit from what's called a hydrodistension, which is where we actually stretch the bladder with water. And, you know, this is obviously generally done while they're asleep, but, right. you know, that stretching and that stretching of the bladder can increase their bladder capacity, which cuts down on kind of urgency and frequency episodes. But it's actually been shown to treat the pain as well. And we'll, we can often put like a steroid or a numbing medication um, into the bladder as well. But, you know, going back to your previous point about the pelvic floor physical therapist, these 90% of patients with non-ulcerative interstitial cystitis, the majority of them will have a pelvic a pelvic floor dysfunction to go along with it. So we'll always do a thorough exam of the pelvic floor. Um, but generally, these patients have a chronically guarded pelvis and very mm-hmm. hypertonic pelvic floor muscles where we'll send almost all of them to a pelvic floor physical therapist to work on relaxing those muscles. And in the worst cases, we have to do what's called trigger point injections where we can actually put steroid and numbing medication into those muscles to, to kind of speed that relaxation process. But uh, we always tell patients, you know, there's usually not just one treatment or a magic pill that magically makes interstitial cystitis go away. Mm -hmm. It's generally thought of as a chronic condition, and it it often requires maintenance therapies such as physical therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, numbing medications, you know, cystoscopy in the bladder. So it can sometimes complicate both the timing, but also the technique of a gender reassignment surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, it's difficult to sometimes sign these patients up for operations such as urethral reconstruction, a neophallus, you know, if they're if they're having ongoing bladder pain and requiring these recurrent cystoscopies and things like that. So so I agree with you. We would almost certainly want to calm down the bladder inflammation before we kind of embarked on a major gender reassignment surgery. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, it may complicate things and you would definitely want to get it under control, but it wouldn't necessarily cause someone to not be an eligible candidate. Correct. Yeah. But I would, I would certainly want to, you know, for them to be symptom free, right. you know, for at least six months or so before we put them through a big operation, then immediately having to put cameras through a neophallus and a newly right. constructed urethra um, to right. do bladder treatments. We, we would, we would certainly hope to calm down the interstitial cystitis before we do that. Right. Right. And not only that, this, the vaginoplasty itself is an extremely painful procedure. So then you might be chasing this loss of pain after that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, too, I, I wonder, you know, I, I'm familiar with vaginoplasty, of course. I'm less familiar with the preparations because I find that each surgeon does it differently. But I'm, you know, I wonder if a general recommendation is to have patients undergo pelvic floor PT in preparation for the surgery and if that has helped surgical outcomes. Have you seen anything like that or do you know anything about that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't. You know, unfortunately, I don't have a paper that I can quote off the top of my head. But, right. um, you know, having, having you know, d- participated in a number of vaginoplasties, you know, it, it is quite an involved operation. And, uh, you know, obviously, the vagina is intimately involved with the pelvic floor as well. So, right. you know, I think a pelvic floor physical therapy, you know, would certainly be helpful both before and after the vaginoplasty. Yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. That's more really good information. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that before we move on? Nope. I think, I think we covered it pretty well. Awesome. So the other thing I wanted to touch on was hormone pellets. You know, I get a lot of questions, especially with trans men that get injection burnout a lot. And, you know, I don't love androderm, the patch. I feel like a lot of guys get dermatitis from it. Um, and then depending on whether or not they've had hysterectomy or removal of the gonads, I should say, it's almost more challenging too to uh, eliminate the menstrual cycle with some of the topical applications. So usually I do lean very heavily on injectables for that. But, you know, I get a lot of questions about once they're well maintained on their transition and their hormones are steady, or if they've had removal of the gonads, if pellets are an option. And I, I don't really have a lot of providers here in Atlanta to refer them to. And so I get a lot of questions about that. And I know that you do the pellets. So also, I know you do them too for trans women. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because, you know, it's kind of a new thing here. And I know it's very much used out on the West Coast. It's more progressive, you know, in the more progressive areas. But here in Georgia, it's not considered a, a very common option for these patients. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, hormone replacement is, you know, obviously something near and dear to my heart as an andrologist. But, you know, I, I kind of go through all all patients, you know, in, in all scenarios that are looking for hormone replacement that, you know, really, we do have a lot of options. And, you know, the, the way I try to educate them is, you know, you know, what are these different options? What are the mode of delivery? Um, but also, you know, kind of what are some of the pharmacokinetic what we call pharmacokinetics or, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, how is the patient going to interact with that medication? So, you know, generally hormone replacement exists in a few, a few different preparations. So probably the oldest and, and most common is the injectables that you talk about. So, yep. you know, testosterone cypionate is probably the most common version of that. Mm-hmm. Most patients will inject themselves, you know, every, every two weeks, sometimes every week. And, 
there can be some injection fatigue from that. You know, there can be some pain from that. Um, obviously, lots of supplies and needles, you know, frequent right. trips to the pharmacy. But from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, what patients often complain about is they feel great on the first few days of the injection. But by the time it's, you know, two weeks have passed and it's time for the next injection, you know, they're, they're really feeling burnt out. They're really feeling like they need their hormones. And that, that kind of mirrors the pharmacokinetics. You know, if you look at the curve, mm-hmm. um, you know, testosterone levels really spike in the first few days after the injection, but they tend to taper off as time goes. So, you know, my patients that are in injections, I'll, I'll often half the dose and have them inject every week instead of every two weeks to kind of overlap those lines and try to give them a more consistent level of testosterone. All of the dermatologic preparations, you know, whether it's a patch, whether it's a gel, it's really difficult for us to know kind of how each individual patient is going to take up that hormone. And so that, that kind of a forces us to have to titrate the medications, Mm -hmm. you know, do lots of blood work and frequently check in on how patients are doing. Um, You know, I always talk to patients about the theoretic risk of transference to like a partner or a child or another loved one in the house. So, you know, when there's, when you're putting these agents on the skin, you, you certainly need to be careful about that as well. But the pellets have really helped my practice. You know, the, you know, pellets, you know, simply put are subcutaneous pellets that we'll usually place in the upper outer buttocks area. So these pellets, uh, you know, it's basically a 30 second procedure in my office. Um, you know, the patient is awake, kind of mm-hmm. laying on their stomach. We sterilize the skin in that area and I put some numbing medication in. And then we have an applicator device where I can put pellets underneath the skin. So um, we have testosterone pellets, you know, we have estrogen pellets. Um, you know, we're not using progesterone very often in a transdermal fashion, but mm-hmm. um, certainly we can do testosterone and estrogen or even combination pellets. But these pellets will usually give the patient a slow, steady uptake of either testosterone or estrogen for a three-month period. And so the first time we do it, we'll usually check blood work about six weeks after the pellet procedure to see kind of what is their mid-cycle testosterone or estrogen level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll, we'll use that to kind of reach a decision on how many pellets we're going to put in, you know, the next time we do the pellet procedure. Yeah. But once the patient has kind of, you know, reached their steady dose of pellets, then this is just a procedure that they need to come into the office maybe three or four times a year and just have the, the pellets placed. So, you know, patients that, uh, you know, frequently say, hey, I love this. You know, I just come to the office. It takes 30 seconds, three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not having to inject myself every couple of weeks. I'm not having to go to the pharmacy. You know, if there's compliance issues, they're not having to remember to take their medication or say, hey, you know, um, did I do this last week? Did I not do this last week? I can't remember because I didn't put it in my phone. It, it kind of takes a lot of those, you know, things out of play. So, so patients have liked it. You know, from the pharmacokinetic standpoint, they really like the fact that they get an even distribution of, um, of hormones over that entire three-month cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's obviously been very nice for patients as well. Yeah, that's awesome. So what kind of levels are you looking for when you say mid-cycle? Yeah, so um, yeah, I think once you've made the diagnosis that hormone replacement therapy is ne- necessary, I'm almost always treating the patient rather than the numbers itself. Right. So we like to keep patients, you know, in a safe range. Uh, and that can vary, you know, kind of depending on, you know, what condition you're treating, whether it's, you know, low testosterone or if this is just, you know, post-orchiectomy testosterone replacement. 
you know, it, it really it really varies on, you know, what the condition is that you're treating. But certainly, you know, the patient's symptoms matter more to me than than kind of what the absolute numbers are. Yeah, for sure. So when you're doing it for transgender medicine, do you find that the testosterone does aromatize into estradiol very frequently or you're not seeing those increased levels? Yeah, we frequently do. And if that's the case and it's bothersome, then we can add a, a medicine like Arimidex to prevent, you know, that peripheral conversion to aromatase. And that that's something that we'll frequently do for these patients. The other question I had pertaining to that is, you know, there's a lot of talk in the community about, you know, endometrial lining with, you know, estrogen present. While we know that like testosterone is extremely atrophying to the internal biological female organs and that it's unlikely even in the presence of estrogen for them to develop an endometrial lining. Do you have specific recommendations as it pertains to the pellets on monitoring for that? Or is it not something that you've had to encounter before? Yeah, honestly, I haven't encountered that a whole lot. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's probably something you can you can teach me on. But, you know, I, I honestly haven't encountered that a whole lot. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, typically, um, I just tend to monitor the estrogen levels and I try to treat elevated estradiol as I would for a cis male. So anything over 70, especially if they're having cramping or bleeding, I treat obviously uh, with a Remedex also just to get it down into a normal range. But as far as monitoring for the endometrial lining, you know, I kind of defer to gynecology for that as well, as far as their routine follow-ups. But everybody who has had a transvaginal ultrasound has not, to my knowledge, any of my patients had any kind of endometrial build up as long as the estrogen levels were not elevated. So I was just kind of curious to see, because I find with the topical gels that the estrogen levels stay really high in that population. And so then I do get concerned if they are still with a uterus that it might, even though the testosterone atrophies those organs, I still get concerned that with that estrogen, unchallenged estrogen, it, it could it could develop. So that's why I was curious yeah, what kind of levels you see or how common it is for you to see high estrogen levels with the pellet application. Uh, and that's fascinating. I think, you know, everything you're getting at just, I think, highlights the importance of a really strong kind of multidisciplinary team. You know, it's, yeah. um, I think, well-documented in the literature and, and understood that you have to kind of approach these cases from a number of different angles. And so mm-hmm. kind of having a cohesive team that has, you know, strong communication is, is, I think, key for kind of good outcomes with patients. Yeah, absolutely. So with the timing of the estrogen, have you seen, like, what kind of levels do you get with the estrogen? Because typically I find that the estrogen levels have to really surge and be above like 400 for feminizing effects to occur. Is that the kind of levels that you get with the estrogen pellets? Yeah. So I, I, I honestly haven't gotten, I haven't seen levels that high. So mm-hmm. I personally haven't experienced that, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want to obviously speculate on the podcast or anything like that, sure. you know, so but yeah, I mean, I haven't seen levels um, that high, so that, that that's interesting. It's something I'll have to watch out for, obviously, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just curious, when you have you placed a lot of pellets for trans women? Um, so I wouldn't say a lot. I mean, I, we, do, we definitely do a lot of estrogen replacement, you know, for, for non-trans women uh, mm-hmm. and tons of testosterone replacement for for trans patients, you know, that, that's something that we're doing, you know, very commonly, you know, estrogen, I think is something we can offer, but not something that we're, we're doing a whole lot of routinely. Yeah. Know, so. Well, 
cool. We yeah. can always navigate that together on a case by case basis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Cause that would be really beneficial because I mean, right now I only have a, a couple of patients interested in the estrogen pellets, but you know, some of okay. them have fully completed their transition. And so we're really just looking for maintenance. Like if we would like a postmenopausal female rather than actually initiate initiating a new puberty. So yeah, yeah that'd be great. Cause we can work on a protocol and, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd love to learn about that with you and just kind of, I can look up some papers and even talk to folks around and, and we can get a solid kind of pellet program together for them. You know, yeah. So. That would be really helpful. Cool. Well, just yeah. to summarize our discussion about pellets, it sounds like both are very viable options as far as testosterone and estrogen. A little less is known about estrogen pellets, but definitely willing to offer it to the patients. And it's something that we can navigate and discuss with our patients on a case-by-case basis. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. And we, we, of course, are you know more than happy to see any of your patients and, you know, an- answer any questions they have. You know, telemedicine is something that's kind of evolving and new for us that mm-hmm. um, I think is one of kind of the pleasant surprises that we've had, you know, amidst this, um, you know, very unfortunate Corona pandemic. But, you know, that's certainly given me the opportunity to, you know, connect with more patients from the comfort of their own home or, you know, geographically, they're kind of far away from my office. So um, these are all things that we love to discuss with patients, uh, you know, either in person or online. Yeah. So that's good to note too. So you are accepting new patients. If people can't travel in, you're able to at least do the initial intake uh, over virtual medicine? Absolutely. Yeah. So our practice, um, you know, has seven locations in the Metro Atlanta area. Um, they're all full service locations with the surgery center, but also lab and ultrasound services. So, you know, very commonly I'll meet with folks, uh, for their initial telemedicine visit. And if, uh, labs or some, some precursor workup is, uh, required, they can get that done close to home. And then we can have a follow-up visit, you know, in person and kind of keep the ball rolling without, you know, too much disruption because of travel and things like that. Awesome. So if patients wanted to connect with you specifically, what's the best way they could uh, reach you? Absolutely. So our website is www.advancedurology.com. And I can also be reached on all the social media platforms, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Facebook at Chirag, C-H-I-R-A-G, D-A-V-E underscore M-D. And so again, love to hear from patients, um, you know, love to interact with patients on social media. But we have um, same day and next day appointments available all the time. And you can book those from our website, uh, advancedurology.com. Awesome. And we'll list all of those two in the podcast summary for uh, patients to be able to refer to and get in touch with you. It was so good to speak with you today. And I thank you so much for your time. I know you're really busy and you are had a long day doing surgeries and seeing patients. So I, I totally appreciate your time. And I think it's going to be extremely valuable for all my listeners. Thank you so much for having me on today, Aaron. And it was a pleasure to meet your audience in the community and look forward to seeing some of you in the clinic soon. Awesome. Thank you. Remember, everybody, stay fierce and live your truth. 